Hello again and welcome to Rasslin Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ. Beyond the FM dial, you can listen to us live worldwide as we stream our audio at radionorthland.org and tune in radio too. That app is very easy, convenient. Did I mention it was free? Uh, and if you happen to uh, not be able to catch this episode live and in the moment, you can go to radionorthland.org. There's a Rasslin Memories page that will link you to six years of Rasslin Memories interviews, episodes, and all kinds of fun and horseplay. That's at RadioNorthland.org. I'm Glenn Broggett up here in uh, lovely, scenic, postcard, picturesque Thief River Falls, Minnesota, with my co-host, uh, who is uh, in the mobile studio. And I, from what I've been hearing, the weather is uh, a, a little bit more cooperative with you this time around. I want to welcome in the grizzled vet, Mr. Michael McCurdy, to the program. Always good to join you, Glenn. And yes, the weather is cooperating a little bit better uh this week so i'm looking forward to this interview and i might add that you can also find links to the upcoming episodes on our facebook page just search for wrestling memories then and now we post the links to all the current episodes there as well as our upcoming twitter and instagram there'll be links on those as well so those two are still in the works but facebook you can always find the link to the current episode so we're working on that social media thing but yes you can check out the facebook page like it leave comments have fun with it and enjoy all things wrestling. And you mentioned we have ourselves, a, I think, one of the the more unique guests we've had in quite some time on wrestling memories. And that's saying quite a lot considering the pro wrestling business, Mike. Uh, man, the, I, this book I, I, I received uh, last week, I, I received uh, a digital copy from John Cosper uh, from Eat, Sleep, Wrestle. And man, this, uh, this guy, our guest story, it, it's... So hard to it's hard to believe, but it's awesome that it is true, uh, Mike. What did you think about it uh, before we get to introducing our guests? You know, it's kind of sad. Pretty much for the last like ten, fifteen years, all I read is wrestling biographies, wrestling books. It's just my thing. And this book, I read it all the whole book in three days. I never have laughed out loud reading a wrestling book, and the stories in this book were just—they're entertaining. They're amazing and very descriptive. You can actually, you can almost see what's happening as you read the book. So I'm looking forward to talking to our guest tonight and he's going to get a little bit more uh, detail on some of the stories that I read. And maybe he might have a couple stories that weren't in the book that he can share with us as well. That would be, uh, that would be so great. The book is Memoirs of a Madman and it is a great honor to welcome to Rasslin' Memories then and now the one and only hardcore legend, Madman Pondo, Pondo. Man, this is a fantastic book. And uh, by the way, thank you for coming on the program and uh, taking uh, a little time out of your schedule. I I, I must uh, have to think that uh, you've been receiving a lot of interviews and stuff, uh, a lot of momentum about this book because it is such a good one. Well, uh, I want to thank you guys for giving me the time to talk about the book. And just the, uh, the way you guys described it just tells it all. I want people to know that, yes, I am a professional wrestler, but no way, shape, or form is this book all about wrestling. There's there's all types of stuff in there, going from the forward being from the Vanilla Ice to uh, having sex with Bridget the Midget to putting uh, Vicks vapor rubs in, in our tear ducts with Marilyn Manson, uh, stapling dollars to my face to give to Johnny Fairplay at his wedding, you name it. There's there's so much more than professional wrestling. There's ribs that I've pulled, ribs that's pulled on me, all types of stuff. But, uh, you know, I didn't want my book just to be, yeah, I landed Bob Wire and, and been to all these countries. I, I didn't want that. I want people to be entertained uh, from all, all parts of life. You know, not just the wrestling fan. I want the music fan. I want the comedy fan. I want everybody to be entertained with this book. And just by the description that you two gave, I think I've pulled that off. Most definitely, I think you've pulled it off in spades. I mean, in this book, I mean, like you said, it it, it isn't just a wrestling book. I mean, you've uh, you've dipped your finger, your toes into a many different little things. You find yourself uh, in this uh, story of your life. You, you've been a small time uh, cable access talk show host. You've uh, you've helped out with the Jerry Springer show. You've met countless celebrities. You've worked with the Insane Clown Posse, and of course, of course, the the wrestling. We got to go back to the wrestling and how you. 
uh, planted the seeds uh, for your own hardcore career. And uh, I, I want to go back in time uh, to talk about how you, uh, you know, how did wrestling get into your life? I mean, uh, we'll, we'll talk about how you got into the training, but when you were growing up, were you a big fan of pro wrestling? And, and who were some of the guys, if you were, that were, were drawing you in and, and, and getting you to watch and kind of, uh, I don't know, again, more seeds being planted into what you would end up uh, being with your future self? Well, me, my family is very reserved. Like, they they, uh, they hate being the center of attention, and they're not very loud and all that, but then I came out, so I don't know where I came from. So we would go over to my great-grandma and grandpa's house uh, for Sunday breakfast, dinner, whatever it was, and always Channel 7 Wrestling, which was, CWA at the time, which became USWA later, was Jerry the King Lawler, Bill Dundee, uh, you know, the fabulous ones, that that wrestling, but you could see it live at Evansville Coliseum. But something would happen to my great-grandma and grandpa. You know, we wasn't like a religious family, but we didn't really cuss out loud, but during wrestling, my great-grandma and Grandpa would be like thirty mother, and me and my brother would would just laugh and and uh, it, it, the fan, you know, I couldn't wait to get to my grandma, you know, my great grandma and grandpa's house, and then when I got there, I wanted to hurry up and get this meal done. I wanted wrestling to start where I can put some of them to go off on the TV, and my grandma and my mother would be telling them, you know, like calm down, the kids are right here, but they might do it for us for a little bit, but then they'd start right back up, and I loved it, and it just made me a fan of professional wrestling, you and then, know, uh, there oh, was a guy named, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, just to back to the yeah, connection yeah. about your connection to how you got into pro wrestling, or watch, started watching pro wrestling, it seems so similar to uh, to me and maybe countless others who have listened, you know, I had uh, a grandma that, that would say she would never watch it, but boy, she'd be sitting in the counter by by the living room, and she'd be getting into it, and I also had on my others, my dad's side of the family, we used to go up for Sunday dinners every once in a while uh, with my grandpa, and I would get there just in time to watch uh, the AWA uh, feed uh, from Winnipeg, because he was, he lived up in North Dakota, closer to the Canadian border. So, yeah, I can definitely relate to you when it comes to uh, having family members that kind of turned me on to the wrestling in general, my grandparents. Right. And, and you know, when grandparents start cussing and going off, it's something you got to pay attention to. You can't, it's like a car wreck. You can't turn your head, you know, you just got to watch. But then, uh, so I wasn't all that great of a student in school, but there was a guy out of my hometown named Roy West Jr. And he cared about, you know, my group of uh, friends and our grades and stuff like that. So he told our mothers if if we kept our grades up, he would take us to these live wrestling events. Well, I went from an F and a D to a C and a D student, and my mom was so impressed with that. So I, I got to go to all types of professional wrestling. Uh, I lived in Florida, Illinois, an hour and a half to the west with St. Louis, Missouri, and they had a company called Wrestling at the Chase, which had Bulldog Bob Brown, uh, Andre, Bruiser Brody, you know, uh, cool wrestlers like that. Then an uh, hour to the south had uh, ICW, which was Angelo Apostle's group, is where I saw Macho Man, Randy Savage, Lethal Lanny, uh, Crusher Broomfield, who later became One Man Gang, George Weintraub, and then an hour and a half to the east was Evansville, Indiana, where I got to go watch guys like Terry King Lawler, Bill Dundee, the Sheep Herders. You know, that that was actually my favorite one at the time because it was just so, so raw and violent, and the, the crowd was way more... Uh, cuss-worthy and, and all that. Five hours to the north was Chicago, Illinois, that just had everything. Uh, they had a whole bunch of uh, independent promotions. AWA would come there. Uh, WCW was there. I went to the Night of the, the Skywalkers. I remember that. I went to the Halloween Havoc at WC. You know, uh, they had WWF. 
but there was a company called Windy City Wrestling ran by Sam Desiro, and he put matches together that I wanted to see. Like, I was a big, I'm a big Sergeant Slaughter fan, not because of the WWE stuff, but his AWA stuff. You know, he was just uh, the man there. And they would put, you know, they would bring back memories for me. They'd, they'd put Sergeant Slaughter versus Colonel De Beers in a boot camp match. Uh, Abdullah the Butcher took on some guy named Frank Patang. Bam Bam Bigelow came in and did a battle royal. But uh, the two main events that I remember, the first main event was uh, Bruiser Brody took on John Nord, who later became the Berserker. But it just went all over the building. It was awesome. And another one I remember, and if you ever catch the video somewhere out there, I'm sitting on the front row, but it is... Bam Bam Terry Gordy took on Bam Bam Bigelow for the Bam Bam name. And, of course, they fought outside and got counted out, so they both got to keep the Bam Bam name. But to me, that was just, you know, shock value of, hell, yeah, these two guys from two different areas are going out, you know. And they had Iron Sheik, you know, just all types of cool wrestlers back then. So, you know, over WCW or WWF or all those other companies. I went to Super Class 3, that one that had Jerry the King Lawler versus Kerry Von Erich. Yes. Cut his arm yes, yes. Uh, that, that was one of those uh, being up in AWA but country. I wasn't impressed. Yeah. I wasn't impressed with any of them companies like I was Windy City Wrestling. See, I can remember, uh, you know, the, the Super Clash, I, I, it was what, about 88, late 88, uh, right towards the end of, of the AWA. And, you know, they had uh, such high hopes for that show. And, and from what it sounded like uh, at the UIC Pavilion, they didn't really get the crowd. And then, of course, the pay-per-view buys weren't it. And, you know, it was just a bunch of guys, like these promoters trying to get together and not unlike what they tried to do with Pro Wrestling USA, uh, it just didn't work. The talent exchanges were, were were great ideas, but it just couldn't seem to you know get things uh, you know worked out. Even after Lawler uh, went over uh, Von Erich, there was still uh, heat of which how he would defend his title versus you know Memphis versus the AWA office. So yeah, when I think of Super Clash Three, I just think about what a cluster f that was. Well, uh, uh, something that you might not know the. The Rock and Roll Express took on, I think, the Rock and Roll RPMs, but that didn't show up on the pay-per-view. I talked to Ricky Morton later, and I guess Robert Gibson was really, really late getting there. So it it was the the dark match after Terry Von Erich and Jerry the King Lawler. Now, you, you talk about, uh, you know, these events, going to these events. Now, when was the first time or who was the first, you know, wrestler that you actually got to meet? And uh, what were some of those encounters like? Because in your book, we fast forward, you had a, a really an interesting encounter with uh, one of the uh, more feared guys uh, in, in, who wrestled all across the territories. Uh, we're talking about the Canadian lumberjack, Joe Ledoux. But can you talk a little bit about, aside, you know, not only just Joe, but some of the guys that you did get a chance to meet early on when you were that aspiring wrestling fan? The uh, the wrestling at the Chase, they would let you go down into the parking garage where the wrestlers, you know, would cross over to get to their cars. But it was kind of a thing back then. People knew, don't approach the wrestlers. Like, Bruiser Brody crossed right in front of me. But, you know, I was just a kid. I was afraid to say, hello, Mr. Brody, or anything. Uh, Andre the Giant, he would come through, he would, you know, grab your hand or, or, you know, shake your head and stuff. But it just wasn't like meeting them. There was no photo ops, nothing like that. I didn't really, and then ICW, uh, I think Randy Savage was so big on kayfabe that there was no pictures like those guys wouldn't take pictures with you. You'd say, hey, can I take a picture with you? And they would just walk on. Of course, Lisa Manny would come out of intermission, but that would be the only, you know, there would be only like one good baby face that would come out and you could take a picture with. So I did get to meet Lisa Manny. Uh, at a at a Big John's in Carmel, Illinois, I got to meet Burt Ward. 
which is Robin from the the Batman series, mm-hmm. and he would take a little time with you, and I was just so impressed with that that I that I actually got to talk to Burt Ward and got my picture taken with him. That when I started going to the Evansville Coliseum, I was dedicated on not only getting a picture taken with guys, but talking to guys. And so I started uh, going to the Evansville Coliseum there in Evansville, and the parking lot was behind the building, and there was no holds bar. There was no security, nothing back there. So you could talk to Jerry Kingwaller on the way to his car, Bill Duddy on his way to his car. But I was always a freak. I would always go over and, uh, it was never uh, Butch and Luke. I, I think it was in the beginning, maybe two or three shows, but there was another sheep herder named Jonathan Boyd. Oh, yeah. And a whole bunch of people was afraid of Jonathan Boyd, but I'm the kid that would be like, Mr. Boyd, can I please take a picture with you? And he, he did it. And uh, me being a child, he took that picture. But then when adults would come on and say, can I take a picture? Of course, he'd showing some heat and the Evansville Coliseum is where I actually started getting to meet professional wrestlers in the back. Now I'm going to bring over the conversation to uh, Mike McCurdy to ask you a few questions here. Uh, Mike, are you ready to go with Bad Band Pondo? Um, yeah. The first question I'd like to ask, um, listening to him talk and some of the guys that he saw in the ring and wrestling on that one, I'd like to know is, you know, we, from reading the book, you know more about it, but, who trained him to start and watching the great wrestling that you got to see what brought you to want to become eventually become get into hardcore wrestling where you would eventually become very well known. Okay. Uh, of course, every kid who would go to professional wrestling would say, I'm going to be a wrestler someday, but you can ask my mom. I was so dedicated on it. I always talked about it. I always said I was going to do it. Uh, there was a thing at school. It said, draw what you're going to be when you grow up. And of course, kids were drawing fire trucks and firemen and police and kiss-ass kids were drawing school teachers. Well, I drew a wrestling ring with two stick people going at each other. And at the top, I put, I'm going to be a professional wrestler. And my mom kept that paper for, I don't know how long, but it's gone now. We don't know even know. We wouldn't even know where it was. And uh, my mom knew. My mom and my dad knew that I was pretty dedicated. That someday I was going to be a professional wrestler. So, uh, what what was the question again? Where was I going with that? Sorry. I was wondering is you know who trained you for the ring and okay, yeah, what yeah. eventually got you to go into the hardcore wrestling uh, element. Okay, uh, so. So after many, many years, uh, I was friends with a a teacher in Alma Central College named Milton Smith. And Milton Smith came to me and said, hey, I have a professional wrestler in my class. And I said, really? I said, can you get the guy's telephone number for me? And he said, yes. Are you just wanting to go to his shows? I said, no, I'm going to talk to him about training. And that was the sensational hillbilly Terry Runyon. I talked to Terry Runyon. Terry Runyon told me where the training school was, and it was run by, rest in peace, Bud Chapman. Actually, Terry Runyon and Bud Bud Chapman, rest in peace both. But uh, I went to training every day for six months, and then finally on June 24th, 1989, uh, I had my first match with, the Avalanche, who later went on to USWA and was one half of the champs, uh, Melvin Penrod Jr. But I started training, and I was dedicated on it. Started on my birthday, and I've just been doing it ever since. And June 24th of this year was 29 years for me. So getting into professional wrestling, I, I, I did what Bud wanted me to do. Then uh, I broke off from Bud and... and I went and worked at Bill Dundee's company at a furniture store, and then I would go to Hollowall, Tennessee, and I'd wrestle for Chris Champion. And, you know, I wasn't the most technical wrestler in the world. I didn't have a great body. I wasn't a high flyer. 
But uh, I had things in my brain that would help me get over with the crowd. You know, I was uh, I would uh, pitch them out, or being a baby face, I knew how to get them behind me. But that still wasn't good enough. I didn't want to just be one of the forty miler wrestlers that that would just you know wrestle in their hometown. I wanted to be something that everybody knew. So, like me and eight or nine, sometimes 11 friends would get together at each each people's houses. And do you remember the pay-per-views in your house? That was like every week. Oh, yeah. Okay. We would all rent those. And nobody, after a while, would be even watching the TV. You know, I mean, of course, we all watched the main event. And if there was like one killer match on that pay-per-view, we would watch that. But for the most part, we were just you know, talking back and forth. But I was a big tape trainer back then. So then I would pop in a Japanese deathmatch videotape and all eyes were on the screen. And that's when I told myself, man, I can do this. You know, I can, I have the gumption of wanting to do something different. And that's what it was. Deathmatches. So I wanted to do those so bad. And then, next thing I know, Ian and Axel started doing them at ECW. And I missed my opening niche of getting to do them here. But then, uh, I got a hold of Ian after ECW was either he quit, got fired, depends on who you talk to. When he was done with ECW, I got a hold of Ian. And we just traveled all over and we worked right there for IWA Mid-South and uh, next thing you know, I'm a deathmatch star, and that's how that changed. Now, there's another name right there is um, Ian Rotten. I was a big tape trader back in the day too, and I know that for myself and you know the friends that I know, when we'd get a tape that had you know Ian Rotten, Madman Pondo. I mean, I have I still have some of your tapes in my collection. You know, we would watch this wow. stuff because Ian Rotten is another uh, you know icon in the hardcore wrestling um, industry, pretty much. What was it like to work with Ian Rotten? Uh, he was pretty demanding on what he wanted, and and uh, you know, I I more or less went everywhere Ian was going, and he would trash my body, I would trash his. But basically, what I was doing was going from place to place, getting contacts from other promoters, getting my name out to other fans, getting my my face shown the fans, uh, Pit, you know, Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, you know, all these places. And then finally, after I broke off from uh, Ian as much, I already had a fan base and uh, promoters wanting to work with me. So it was easier on me to travel with Ian all these places do the things that we did, and then later on break off and and uh, have an easier time in other territories. And that's exactly what I did. And and uh, so I'm still doing that today. And, like, people ask me, uh, uh, so what promotions are you working for? And my answer is always whoever says yes. Now, one thing I'd like to touch on real quick. Um, like I said, reading your book, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. There are great stories. And like you said, there are stories about uh, you with Bridget the Midget, and the, but just some of the things that would pop up that related to me, that these are things that I grew up with. One of those is how you came up with your name, how they came up with the name Pondo. Because right. when I read that, I owned that movie. My friends and I watched <laughs> that movie 24-7, loved that movie. I never put the two together. So can, oh, you, yeah? can you tell the story just kind of where the name came from? Because obviously Pondo is not a... You know, it's not, it's not a common name. Right. Well, uh, my first three jobs was at three different video stores. I've always been a big movie fan, and I worked at CNN Video, SNL Video, and then it went across the street and changed into something else. But, so I was always the guy that every, all, the, all my friends hung out with because I had free access to a VCR and free access to movies. And, you know, we watched all types of shit. We watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, 
Mother's Day, but one day we got a movie called The Party Animal. And there was a seven-year college student who had never been laid and was dedicated on it. And uh, finally he got it. But anyway, the his name was Pondo Sinatra. And next thing I knew when I was going to school, of course I had trouble back then with girls. So everybody started calling me Pondo. And to begin with, I hated it. Like, I didn't want it. But you either own it or you fight about it all the time. So screw it. I owned it. So the name Pondo, um, I mean, to this day, if somebody says Kevin, I don't know if they're talking to me or not. But if they say Pondo, I know they're talking to me. So Pondo stuck. And then I going to wrestling, I always liked the crazy guys. I liked Abdullah the Butcher. I liked you know, the sheep herders and all that. So that's what I wanted people to, to think about me as. I wanted people to think about a crazy maniac man, but there was a, a maniac Mark Lewin, there was a crazy Mike Davis, you know. The only name that I knew that there wasn't taken that was a madman was Madman. So I put the two together, Madman Pondo, and had a lot of trouble getting people to remember that name, but now... It's, you know, pretty well known that that's my name, Madman Pondo. But that's how those two get together. So every time you hear the ring announcer say Madman Pondo, you'll know now that I was a crazy kid who couldn't get laid. But but, but I went way past that now. You know, that, that name's passed, and, and I've gotten laid a couple of times, so I'm good. But uh, Madman Pondo, that's how that became a part of me. Now, what do you remember about your your debut your debut hardcore match? Debut hardcore match was with Ian Rotten, and it was in Scottsburg, Indiana. And I had asked Ian, "Let's do a Bob Wire bat match," because you know that's what I saw him and the Axel do, and that's also a match that really got me going into the death matches. Mr. Danger Masanaga and Mr. Pogo in Japan was messing around with a barbed wire bat. So I asked Ian, can we do a barbed wire bat? And he agreed. And then when he showed up that day, he walked in with a, a, a huge leather strap. And he said, yeah, I got you thinking about it. And I don't really want to do a barbed wire bat match because, you know, I don't want you swinging on me and hit me in the eye. I don't want to swing it on you and, and you up. He's like, so let's just start out with leather straps. I was disappointed, but I said, okay, let's do it. So I was dedicated on showing Ian that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do these death matches. So every time he would strap me, no matter where he would strap me, I, I made my blade extra, extra long, and I would cut myself. If he strapped me on the back, I would cut myself. If he strapped me on the stubby, I'd cut myself. And it got to the point where he was even getting annoyed, and he, would, he said, damn it, kid, stop cutting yourself so I knew that I was doing something right for him to say that and then when I got in the back uh, he, he said you know what you showed me this is what you want to do the very next match we'll do Bob Wire Bat and that's exactly what we did and then uh, he started IWA Mid-South and we was the main event for three months and uh, going on the road for Dennis Carluzzo and uh, different shows all Deathless shows and that's I knew I was a deathmatch star. Now, reading the book, just some of the na some of the stuff that I was reading, it made me cringe a little bit. There's four corners of carnage, I believe it was called. Number two uh, pencil. Four sides of pain. Four sides of pain. There we go. Um, <clears throat> you know, number two pencils, light tubes. Is, is there something that Madman Pondo hasn't gone through or hasn't done that you either yeah, want to right. or just won't do? Won't do, and it's razor wire because you know razor razors are just meant to cut the shot of you. Bob wire scratches you. Yeah, sometimes it goes in, but razor wire there is no apprehensive. It's cutting you. So yeah, I really don't want to do razor wire, and I really don't want to do number two pencils for the rest of my damn life. That was agony and the worst ever. So those two things. I really don't want to do anymore. Well, but let me ask you a question. 
uh, singly, both. Mike, what was your favorite story in the book? I have two. That. One, one right. is one is the Walmart when you guys were stranded and you were shopping at a Walmart for because I work at a Walmart and I could just picture yeah. you know the you know reactions from employees and all that. But by far my favorite story is you and the SUV and Bridget the Midget. That is by far, <laughs> it's not even a hardcore wrestling, but that is by far my favorite story in the book because I can just see that actually playing down. I got a chance to meet Bridget years back at an appearance she was doing. And so, but no, reading that story, that's probably one of my favorites. That's the one I probably laughed out loud the most just because of just <laughs> the absurdity of what happened. All right, and number two, what was your favorite story in the book? Well, you know, I there was a couple of really good ones, and and, and ones that uh, stuck out involved uh, some of your uh, brushes with celebrity. Uh, one of which uh, was uh, the time that you. Yeah, you, you crashed the stage when MC Hammer was on stage, and you took a selfie, and you, 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 you know, you were. It was kind of frowned down upon, but then they saw it was you. Uh, I think they were a little bit okay with it, but the fact that you went up and you went and you went for it and and, and got in with MC Hammer, that was pretty pretty cool. But the one that gets me uh, from the non wrestling uh, was the uh, Vix Vapor Rub and the Eyes competition with uh, you, Bill. This is just a great uh, back uh, backstage scenario here. It was you. Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins and a sometime wrestling promoter, a wrestling fan, and Marilyn Manson. And this, this is, a, I guess you could consider it hardcore in its own way, but because I don't think I could ever survive. I would tear up so fast. But tell people a little bit about how the hell did you end up with Billy Corgan, Marilyn Manson, and Vicks Vaporub in your damn eyes and your tear ducts? All right, let me, let me go ahead and uh, state on both of those. If you go to TMZ and look up uh, MC Hammer at the Gathering of the Juggalos, you can see the video of me and MC Hammer. And I didn't put this part in the book, but when I scooped MC Hammer up to take that uh, selfie, he was trying to grab his pants and do that, that MC Hammer dance, and I didn't know it. I thought he was just trying to get away from me. And I put my arm around him and forced him to scoop scooping back up so if you see that picture in the book you can see that i'm happy and you can see his face is horrified that's why he was trying to get to do his dance <laughs> and then you can also see this next story with the mc uh, or i with the marilyn manson on youtube if, if you put in manson versus pondo it'll pop right up right up but uh i was working for resistance pro and billy corgan was a big part of that and I found out that they were going to be in Cincinnati, Billy Corgan and Marilyn Manson. So I wrote Billy and I said, hey, can I come out and and visit with you? And he said, yeah. So he gave me, Sarah Logan, and uh, my buddy Shaq VIP tickets to go to the Billy Corgan experience, which was like an acoustic set before his concert. So after that, he pulled us aside and told his road manager, he said, make sure these guys get a silver and a green armband. And he looked at me and he said, whatever you do, make sure you come backstage after the show. I said, no problem. Uh, so we watched the concert. Marilyn Manson killed it. Uh, Smashing Pumpkins killed it. Well, it wasn't even Smashing Pumpkins. Everybody was just Billy Corgan. But uh, they killed it. And then we went to go backstage, but there was like a crowd of people in front of the fence there at Cincinnati at the Riverbend Arena. So I'm telling Shaq and and, uh, the other one, I'm like, you know what? I I don't think we're even going to make it back there. And the roadie comes out and he's telling everybody, he's like, all right, I need all of you people out of this uh, runway right here. I need you all up against the fence over there. So we started walking with them, and next thing I know, the roadie looks out, and he goes, except for you three. I need you three to come with me. So we went backstage. We passed all those people, and they put us in an extra section backstage inside the building. And the guy said, hold on right here, and let me see where I need to put you then he came back and he says, all right, I need to put you guys into catering. So we went into catering and then Billy come out and he was talking with us 
and uh, we had mentioned that TNA's Marty Bell was out there, and he sent the the roadie to go get her, and she had two guys with her. I, I can't remember what uh, one was her boyfriend. Was, I, I'm so terrible with names. I got faces though. So Marty Bell uh, was sitting there with us, and we're just talking. Comes the emperor. And I looked around, and here comes Marilyn Manson over to the table. And he's got this thing in his hand, and I can't tell what it is, but he's fumbling it around, and he comes over. He says, hey, Billy, what's going on? And Billy said, hey, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I wanted to do a challenge with somebody, but I didn't know who. And Billy goes, how about this guy right here? Now, backing up, Billy made sure there was a seat empty next to me, and the the challenge that Marilyn Manson was going to do was something painful. So I'm pretty sure Billy Corgan already had this in his mind that this is what was going to happen. So uh, Marilyn Manson sits down and the challenge is that me and him put big vapor rubs in our tear ducts until one of us pours tears down our cheeks and then they're the loser. Well, Marilyn Manson, I wasn't going to say no. So we did it. Uh, I think it took two minutes for finally Marilyn Manson's tears. Uh, so, so exaggerating. Uh, I don't even know if that's the word. Anyway, it was annoying. Like, I wanted that out of my eyes so bad. I would have rather he wanted us to, you know, cut ourselves or something, but that's not what he wanted. So we put that stuff in our eyes, and about two minutes, he teared up. And then even after he teared up, I got a napkin and I was ready to get that out of my eyes. But I told myself, I'm not getting that out of my eyes until he does. And then he took another minute, minute and a half talking, and I'm sitting there like, please get that shit out of your eyes. And finally he did. Then I got mine out. And uh, I was the winner, and you can see it all on YouTube. Amazing story. Uh, we are talking with Madman Pondo, author of his uh, latest book, Memoirs of a Madman, that he put together with John Cosper. And uh, we, he is our guest on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I want to talk, you mentioned some musicians that you just talked about, the, uh, the, the, the Vic story with Marilyn Manson and Billy Corgan. I want to talk about some guys that uh, were not only in the music business, but guys that had a respect for the pro wrestling business. And these guys, uh, they're not exactly looked upon by uh you know mom and pop as being these uh good squeaky clean kids in fact they, even our own government uh was starting to uh hound their uh fan base known as the juggalos for for whatever reason but i want to talk about how pondo got associated with uh the insane clown posse and and some of the things that bore fruit from it including uh their year long their yearly gatherings that they have i want to talk about how you ended up getting hooked up with uh with uh, Shaggy and Jay? Me and Ian was uh, working for Malcolm Monroe, not the son, but the father, uh, and a company called Insane Championship Wrestling. And there was two guys, Rick Matrix and Tex Monroe, the week before caught a car on fire that was above the electric lines, so the firemen had to be called. So the minute I heard that, I'm like, holy shit, this is a company that I need to go to. So Ian, Ian uh, got us booked with them, and we was going down there quite frequently. We went four weeks in a row, but on the third week, uh, we did a thumbtack death match, and they bought over 100,000 tacks, and they, they put them in this ring, and Sabu was in attendance who watched the match, who thought we were a couple of idiots, but two guys came over, uh, Hector Hatchet and the sewer dweller came over and was just praising, praising our names. Like, Oh my God, uh, we do videos of that, but, uh, you guys did it. This is the first time we, well, Ian had uh, a problem with these two guys because they used him and Axel's images on their videotape Stranglemania, but he never got a an M, uh, you know, they never asked him or got any money. Now, to me, that's free advertisement, and I would be like, put three more pictures of me on there for all I care. But to Ian, uh, he had a problem with it, so he had a problem with them. So 
they kind of stopped talking to Ian and came over to me. And I was like, brother, that was great. Da, 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 da. And then Violent J said, someday we're going to do something, you know, big with this wrestling and we want you to be a part of it. Would you come with us? And I said, hell yeah, you know. Now, again, I didn't know who these guys was. So, of course, I said, hell yeah. But you get told so much in the wrestling business, you really don't know what to believe and, and who's foolish and who's not. And here's two guys with dreadlocks telling me that they was going to do something someday. Of course, I agreed. You just hope that the things that they're saying are going to come true someday. Maybe, I don't know, a month after that, I'm walking in. They had given me a Super Bowls t-shirt and a CD to listen to. And me and my wife at the time, Lady Vendetta, was listening to it. And, and you know, it was it was entertaining. It was good good music with funny stuff. And, and uh, you know, I became a fan of those guys. Well, I was walking in the mall in St. Louis, and next thing I know, I saw kids, not just a few kids, but a bunch of kids wearing their their T-shirts. And I was like, "Holy shit, these guys are big!" And I didn't even I didn't even realize how big they was. So I kind of lost track with them and didn't know how to get a hold of them. And uh, next thing I know, they're gonna do a show called Stranglemania Live, and they got a hold of Dan Curtis and told Dan Curtis to get a hold of Madman Pondo any way they knew possible. Well, the only way they knew how to get a hold of Madman Pondo was through Ian Rotten. So me, Ian, and Ax, uh, me, Ian, and Ox went down, and, and we did Stranglemania Live. I actually had two matches. I wrestled Angel in the Titties and the Thumbtacks match, and then I wrestled a three-way with Ian and Axel. And I've just been with them ever since. I've been on the JCW tours. Every gathering they've had, this one coming up will be 19th in a row that I'll be in the JCW wrestling ring for Insane Clown Posse. And, uh, you know, I've just known them that long. And, and uh, to, to where when I see them, I'm like, hey, Joe, hey, Joey, everything's cool. And uh, I'm ready to go for the next gathering coming up at the end of this month. So what were some of the highlights uh, for, you know, you've been to these so many years now in a row. What are some of the things that stick out from a previous gathering of the Juggalos uh, that you can remember and, and thinking, wow, that's some crazy stuff, man. All right. Well, I got to see Old Dirty Bastard. That's that's a pretty big highlight for me, you know, because uh, he came into one of the gatherings. And then, man, most of my highlights are sexual because I'm not a handsome man, but at the gathering, I am Brad Pitt, and, like, girls want to have to do with me, and they ask me things, and, of course, I'm not a dumbass. I say, hell yeah, let's do that. So uh, that's a big highlight that hot girls want to have things to do with me. And then uh, my biggest achievement at the gathering of the Juggalos was Terry Funk was JCW champion at one time, and I wrestled Terry Funk and went over for the Juggalo Championship wrestling belt over Terry Funk. What a class act that man is. He's, he's great. And uh, that's probably my biggest highlight, going over Terry Funk. Mm-hmm. And you were also uh, a part of the uh, Juggalo March uh, that they held on, uh, in Washington, D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial because, uh, like I mentioned earlier on, uh, that you know the ICP and their fans uh, seem to have been receiving quite a bit of harassment uh, from from government agencies through the years of affiliating them with a gang. But what was that moment like to be out there in Washington as part of this Juggalo march to uh, you know rattle rattle some cages over there in Washington? I'm telling you that uh, when I'm a small town kid, I you could look it up. I'm from Florida, Illinois, a town of five thousand eighty people. But at the march, I'm standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial. You know, I'm right there in front of the water speaking to people. And who would have ever thought Madman Pondo would be speaking in between those two great monuments of the United States? And not only that, of course, a lot of people's speeches had FBI and that. I didn't even want to mess with that FBI. I wanted the Juggalos to know just how special that day was. And that's what I talked the most about. We were there. 
we, for that moment, the Juggalos were politically correct, and I just spoke my uh, my whole uh, heart out, and the whole speech is in the book. One thing I'd like to get into now is, uh, you know, you, you've had the hardcore career. You've had a chance to meet so many different celebrities. How did the book come around? Because I'm a historian. That's my background. So I'm always looking for material. But how did the book come around? And was this something that you wanted to do? Uh, John Cosper was in the process of writing a book called Eat, Sleep, Wrestling. He was asking different professional wrestlers their opinions and putting paragraphs in the book. Well, I didn't have a picture in there. I didn't have, you know, a big part. I just had two paragraphs in this book. I had two paragraphs in the book. Well, people kept telling John Cosper, hey, uh, we we want to read about Man Man Pondo. Why don't you do a book about him? So John Cosper approached me a long time ago about doing a book on Man Man Pondo. And, of course, I never think anybody has any has any reason to know what I have to say. So I, I, I never denied, I never said no, but I never said yes. And then finally, one day, uh, somebody approached me about it, about doing a book on me. I was like, you know what, I already had this other guy ask me, so I'm going to let him do it. So I called John Costner, or got a hold of him somehow, and I said, hey, let's go ahead and do your idea on the book. And when I agreed to do the book, he was also doing the book on Dr. D. David Schultz, which that is available right now. When he wasn't doing something with Dr. D.'s book, we would go to Denny's or his house or or Roosters or wherever, and I would tell these stories. He would record them. He would write little notes. And he even told me that this was the most entertaining book that he's wrote. Just because some of the stories are so funny and what a good storyteller I am. So he was pretty confident. I think we've done something good here. And I want to go ahead and jump in and say that if you are interested in buying this book, uh, it is on Amazon.com. It is right now the number one wrestling book on Amazon.com. And that's beating uh, Mick Foley's books and Shinsuke Nakamura, from what I understand. Or you can contact John Cosper yourself at eatsleepwrestle.com and he will either sell you just a copy of the book or an autographed copy of the book. I don't own them. I'd send you all one myself, but uh, talk to him about how much that costs and uh, that's the two places, amazon.com or eatsleepwrestle.com and the book called Memoirs of a Madman and like the three of us are telling you, it's not just a wrestling book. There's so much more in there, and I hope you're entertained as much as these two and myself as I read a book about myself. Okay, we've got a little bit of time left for uh, one more question, and I'm going to let the floor be yours here, uh, Pondo. I want to find out what you've been up to, what's going on with some of the the, the pro wrestling ventures you've been involved with. You uh, have uh, something that you've been doing for the last couple of years involving the female wrestlers, but could you talk about what you've got going on, what's coming up ahead, and and, and, and the girl fights uh, stuff as well? Yes, I can. So uh, 2013... We did a girl fight show in Charlestown, Indiana, and it didn't do so well. And then 2015, I moved into a place, and it's connected to the arena owned by Two Tough Tony here in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And we had a ring, we had a sound system, we had a dressing room, we had a whole arena, so we thought, what the hell, let's try it again. So we did some girl fight shows here, and they all drew pretty well, so... We've been doing girl fight since 2015, and we just had uh, two big shows. One on June 29th, uh, we had Midnight Girl Fight, where we started the show at 11.59 on June 29th, which led into Midnight, and we had a pretty good crowd with that. Uh, I can't think of another company that has promoted a show at Midnight. Well, JCW, The Gathering, those shows start one or whatever time you know the the other stuff is done and uh we did pretty good with that and then now we just had our first all girls death match tournament uh in summit illinois for resistance pro all uh death becomes her and then we have another one here in jeffersonville 
August 27th, uh, uh, 21st, sorry. Jeffersonville, August 21st. We have one in Michigan, August 26th. So uh, Girl Fight has been in 12 different states, and it's going pretty strong. One last thing before we uh, part today uh, with you. Uh, just recently, it was announced that Jerry Springer was ending his run of his longtime uh, show, The Jerry Springer Show. Now, in your book, you mentioned a little bit about how you ended up in the wild and crazy world of Jerry Springer. But any thoughts now as Jerry is ending his run uh, as far as what you experienced uh, during your time uh, being associated with The Jerry Springer Show? I am saddened that, it, you know, I, I would admit, I don't have cable, so I haven't watched Jerry Springer in a long time, and I guess a lot of people quit watching Jerry Springer. But to me, Jerry Springer is one of the big pop culture stars of the, of you know, the earth. So it saddens me to know that Jerry Springer is going to stop doing his episodes. But I always had a very good time not just doing the show, but hanging out with the producers and, and uh you know, it just saddens me to know that Jerry Springer is going down. Now, before we go, uh, I'm going to bring it back to Mike. Mike, uh, before we part, do you have anything else? So, anything, anything you have to say before uh, we, we we say goodbye today, uh, Mike? I do want to give uh, Pondo one last answer. Uh, the name came out just a few minutes ago, and he's prevalent through the book. Um, can you tell us a little bit, just real quick, about Too Tough Tony? Too Tough Tony, uh, me and him met this. I can't remember. He was uh, he was wrestling for a company, the Louisville Sluggers, but I would watch him wrestle, and he was really good. The problem is he had leather pants, so people looked at him pretty pretty crazy, like he was uh, you know a village people member or something like that. But uh, I was going on the road to all these places. I knew Tito Tony didn't have nothing to do, so I would take Tito Tony to. MRW and we would rock the house with our matches and finally I asked Ian to let Tony wrestle there and Ian was apprehensive about it but after we wrestled a couple of times Ian was like alright this is, this guy's alright well then uh, when I was going to Japan they asked me to bring somebody with me I took Tony with me and uh, I took him to Mexico with me uh, we wrestled all over the United States for JCW his own uh, landscaping business but he also owns his own wrestling arena here where i live in jeffersonville indiana and he's doing all right for himself well it looks like the time on the wall says it's about ready to wrap up our timekeeper's giving me the old stink eye it's we could talk uh, probably for hours and uh, on end about your life and career and some of our things that we have uh, similar similar traits that we have but as they say time Time has run out, and I want to thank uh, Madman Pondo. Thank you so much. Uh, that book is called Memoirs of a Madman. Check it out. It's not just a wrestling book. It is an all-over-the-place uh, re- interesting read. It's a fantastic. I couldn't recommend this highly enough. Uh, Madman, thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, one last time, Amazon.com or EatSleepWrestle.com. Thank you guys so much for your time. Mm-hmm. For the grizzled veteran Michael McCurdy and Madman Pondo, I'm Glenn Broggett. You have been listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. 